All right. Somebody makes the accusation that the Bible can't be believed, and we're going to go through the types of arguments that we've learned to refute that claim. I'm going to skip over some of the arguments, the details of the arguments themselves, because we've already done them. I just want to show you this is the part where you would use that, and here's why. So, for example, punch one of the negative is the ultimate argument. But when somebody is saying that Scripture can't be believed, that you trusting in the authority of Scripture is ridiculous, you know that what you have to do in the negative argument is attack their ultimate authority, their ultimate standard. So you use that transcendental argument that we talked about. They're saying that you can't believe Scripture, but they can't account for logic itself or for science or for morality or all these preconditions of intelligibility. They're willing to dismiss out of hand the authority of Scripture based on a worldview that can't even account for how they could dismiss anything or how they could accept anything. The unbeliever has no basis to object to the Bible's authority. They have no rational basis to object to your ultimate standard when theirs is as arbitrarily chosen as could possibly be done. And so the negative argument is just to say, no, you have no basis for knowledge and rationality. In th- That's not the way you say it. You say it by asking questions, and you say it by pointing out the inconsistencies in their worldview, right? So you ask, well, tell me why you believe Um, Tell me what, if I can't believe the Bible, what's your ultimate standard? Science. Observed evidence. Well, okay, but can science explain why the scientific method works at all? The idea that conducting an experiment over and over again gives you results that actually tell you something about the future? How how could it be that uh, we learn in a random universe. What, what do we learn? We can learn what happened in the past, but if it's a random order universe, does that tell us anything about what will happen in the future? And just sow some confusion about how do you explain the explaining? Uh, the idea that, that, uh, that logic that you can communicate something to me that makes sense, that's a reasoned argument that we both agree on. That's our experience, right? I mean, what you're saying to me right now makes sense. What I said to you made sense. You disagreed with it, but it was because you could understand what I was saying that you were able to disagree with it. So where do you think that comes from? How does that come up? So this is your transcendental argument, is they have no basis for knowledge and rationality, and if they can't explain knowledge and rationality, then they certainly have no basis for just chucking out the Bible's authority before we even deal with the proximate arguments. So all you're doing in a transcendental argument is uh, muddying the waters. They are so sure that their worldview has something that yours doesn't. It has science and reason on its side. But you've got to muddy the waters of, now wait a minute, how does your worldview explain science and reason? And then from that muddiness, from that confusion, from the ultimate attack, that will inevitably, when talking about the Bible, lead into the proximate arguments. You don't need to be afraid of the transcendental argument 
you don't need to be afraid of starting to go down that path with people because I promise you, unless you are talking with a college student or a college professor, they will bail on that argument as quickly as possible and they will go to the proximate arguments. It's, nobody wants to talk about the intelligibility of the universe and the, the rational basis for human discussion. Nobody. So you be prepared to give that defense, and as soon as they realize you're not just going to roll over and die on the logic side and say, well, I believe what I believe, and that's good enough for me, they'll start moving to proximate arguments, and then that's going to be the easiest fight of all. The proximate arguments when it comes to Scripture are are amazing. They're absolutely incredible. Uh, so let's, any questions about that? And then we'll talk about the proximate. Proximate is attacking. We're, we're in the negative, so we're on the attack. Proximate is attacking the unbeliever's evidence from the external world. So they're going to say, you cannot trust a book written by men. Right? You've heard that. You, I mean, you, you just can't trust a book written by men. Okay, it sounds like your argument is you can't ultimately trust something that's said by human beings. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, Um, what about the argument you just made to me? Do you want me to trust that? This argument that you can't trust a book written by men is an argument made by men. So it seems like there are lots of things that people say that we trust, that we have good reason to believe we can understand and is accurate and can be right. Um, So that isn't really helpful. And by the way, I don't claim that the Bible is a book written by men. In fact, what the Bible says about itself is that it's the inspired word of God. So even if you don't agree with what the Bible says, the Bible's more consistent than you are. Because the Bible says God's word is ultimately true and to be believed because humans are sinful and fallible and get things wrong. What your view says is some humans are fallible and get things wrong sometimes, but I'm right when I say this. And that is really inconsistent. Um... So who's the one really trusting men? Because in my view, I'm saying I trust God. You're saying you trust men when they say don't believe the Bible, but you don't trust the men who wrote the Bible. Uh, So that's no good. They'll say uh, another proximate argument. They'll say written testimony is not enough. I have to see it with my own eyes to believe it. Now, we'll get into more of this later when we get into the positive argument. But on the negative front, remember what you're doing is you're attacking their inconsistency, how they don't live consistently with their worldview. And so here, when they say, I have to see it with my own eyes to believe it, you need to find the gracious way to look at them and say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Name a country they've never been to. Do they believe it exists? Name an animal they've never seen. Do they believe it exists? Name a historical figure that was dead before they were born. Do they believe he exists? Right. So this idea that they only believe things they see with their own eyes is not consistent. It's not accurate. 
And what they're actually doing is admitting that they believe some written sources and not others. And that's fine. We just need them to acknowledge that's what they're doing. There are plenty of written sources that say things that you have never once confirmed with your own eyes. Do you know what I've never confirmed with my own eyes? Acceleration due to gravity. I've actually never measured acceleration due to gravity. I had to memorize it in high school and college. I had to run experiments based on the fact that it was true. But I never took the time myself to go validate and measure this. But it's true. (laughs) Right? Uh, So we point out that they are not applying the standard consistently across their lives. They'll make another proximate argument. They'll say something to the effect of, the Bible is too exclusive. I will not believe a book that condemns all non-Christians to hell. I, I, I won't. Can't be true. You say, okay, well, there's, there's two questions I have about your view there. The first is, it sounds like you're calling the Bible immoral. Is that right? Would you say that because the Bible condemns non-Christians to hell, that it's immoral? Yeah. Yeah, that's just wrong. Okay, well, now we're back to the ultimate, right? They are not allowed to have morals. Um, And then even if you pull it back a level from that, you could ask a question um, about judging, because that's language that makes people comfortable that they're always willing to pile on. So your, your problem with the Bible is you, you think that it's wrong to judge others because there are no absolute truths. Like you think the Bible can be fine for me, but it can't make absolute claims that would judge somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that is an absolute. That it's wrong to make absolute moral judgments is itself an absolute moral judgment. If it is always wrong to judge people, then what you just did was wrong. You made a moral absolute. Uh, So again, you just point out the inconsistency in the negative argument. One of the other ones that I'll mention, but I won't go into in much detail, because in most conversations will be a red herring. So I want to tell you what I recommend you do with it. One of the other proximate arguments you'll hear is, well, the Bible's just full of contradictions. Right? That's one you'll hear. 99% of the time, this is a red herring. In the 1% that it's not, I recommend that you defer that to another. You say, you know what, if that really is something that is a challenge for you, let's sit down and look at some of those together and we'll pull up some great commentaries from some scholars and, and see what we think. So be prepared to do that exercise while I'm telling you, in my experience, you'll never, ever, ever have to do it. You'll never actually have to do it. Because when somebody says the Bible's full of contradictions and your first question is, where? Here's my Bible. Could you show me? Because I I mean, I don't want to believe an illogical and consistent religion. Can you show them to? Oh, I mean, you know, everybody knows. I'm just asking if we could go to to one of them. Well, I I wasn't prepared for this. Okay, okay. you know what? If you had gone to one, I'm probably not prepared to go into detail on it either. So that's fine. But can I ask you this? If we went to every one of those contradictions that, that we could find, and you and I reasoned through them together, and we saw, oh, actually, 
There are not any contradictions. None of these are actually contradictions. Just, just pretend that we did it and all of them turned out to be fake. There's no real contradiction here. Would you believe in the authority of Scripture then? Is that all it would take? No one will ever say yes, that's all it would take, ever. And what they'll do is they'll move you to another proximate argument, either the ones we've already covered or to the existential arguments, to how they feel about it or their own experience, things like that. So that's one you need to be prepared to have, the contradictions in the Bible. There are texts in the Bible that are facially contradictory. That is a reasonable discussion to have with someone who wants to have it. But 99% of the people who raise it, they're not really asking that. They're, they're trying to be dismissive. They think that they can just blow that one by you and you'll be done. Um, so you can offer to work through a sample passage if you happen to know of an example. That can be really powerful. If you say, where could you show me one? And they say, well, no, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. And you take them to one and you walk them through it. Um, the one that a lot of teachers recommend using is how many angels were present at the tomb? How many angels were present at the empty tomb? Two gospel accounts facially give a different number of angels present. But you can actually walk through the text and see, oh, that's not a contradiction. One is giving an absolute number of angels present. One is giving a number of angels that are speaking. It doesn't say this many angels were there. It refers to angels as they spoke. And if you count them up, you get a different number. And you see, look, when two people tell the same story, they're describing it in different ways. How many beings are present is what's in this person's mind. How many beings are speaking is in this person's mind. I mean, if you think that that is some death blow to Christianity, okay. But I, I don't think we would treat any other text that way. Um, and then finally, on the existential front, you just want to continue to sow the seeds of, of, of confusion over the unbeliever's personal experience and how they live. They live as if the Bible were true. They, this is where you make your arguments, that they live as if there are at least some moral absolutes. Ask the questions to figure out what they are. What was the most hurtful thing that anyone ever did to you? Do you think it was wrong for them to do that? What's the most hurtful thing you think's ever been done? Do you think it's always wrong to do that? What do you think? I mean, this word, invoke Hitler if you need to. Invoke Ugandan genocides. Invoke uh, child molesters and child murderers. Like, just Do you think any of these things ever rise to the level of always wrong? Well, of course you do. That's how we all live, right? You and I, we, I'm a Christian and you're not. We have these different worldviews, but we both cheer when we see the child murderer get the death penalty. Or maybe with them you may have to say get punished. Because <laughs> the death penalty is always wrong. <laughs> uh, but you see how that you just walk back through that proximate argument. Because what you're trying to do with people is you care about them as the person. You're not trying to win an argument. You're trying to make a person move a step toward Christ. So some of your arguments are going to be a little highfalutin. They're going to be philosophical or theological, but you all and you should make them because they're good and important arguments. But as you make them, you keep showing the person you care about them and about their experience. Hey, I'm I'm not saying that you're some weirdo. In fact, the way you live is consistent with how Christianity views the world. I, I'm just asking you if you think that the way you live 
is consistent with the way you view the world because I don't quite see it. I, I don't understand how you get from agreeing with me that child murder is always wrong to there are no moral absolutes. Um, so that is the negative argument on Scripture. Any questions about that before we go through the positive? You see how this works? It's not like you're trying to hit a particular order. It's not like you're going in with some rigid structure, but you're going to start with the negative because that's how you get a hearing for the positive is just sowing the seeds of confusion about their own worldview. Pam, did you have a question? Yeah. It seems like if you go there about the you know, child murders and all that kind of stuff, that usually leads to and why would God allow that? Great, and we're ready for that. We just have to be prepared to say, that's a great question, but can we pause for a second and just point out that that's a different question? Do we agree that it is always wrong so that we can say moral absolutes are real? Because I want to talk about why God lets it happen, because that is really confusing and sometimes hurtful to me. But before we do that, can we agree that that means there are moral absolutes. Because if you get them, like any one of those things, you get them to acknowledge, then later when they challenge something, you're going back to, no, I, I thought we agreed. I must have misheard you. But I thought we said that there were moral absolutes. And you need that affirmation. Um, great question. Yeah, they're going to bounce all over the place. Yeah. And part of what you have to resist um, emotionally is being so frustrated by that that you sort of lose sight of the big picture and that you go with them from thing to thing without planting your flag in the ground you've already claimed. And with some people, this goes back to the very beginning of this class when we talked about the answering the fool or not answering the fool and the casting pearls before swine. If you can tell from somebody that that's all they want to do, Everybody will bounce around at the beginning, three, four, five, just kind of. But when you calmly and graciously say, wow, that's a lot to think about, which one would you like to start with? Can we pick one of those and start to work through it? And when it becomes clear to you, they have no interest in that. They just want to overwhelm you with a shotgun and run away. That's pearls before swine. And you know, okay, well, all I can do is pray for this person. Um, And and let them know, hey, I, I really am interested in talking about these things. If, if you ever do want to dig into any of them specifically, I'd be happy to do that. The positive argument. All right. Evidence from Scripture. So again, we start with the transcendental argument. It may be that you've already made this, what I'm about to say, when you're up here, and you don't have to come back to it except to reaffirm. But the Bible is true because the Bible alone provides the foundation for knowledge and rationality. The Bible teaches that its authority is not derived from something else, that it is self-attesting, that it is not merely the words of man, but that it is the words of God. So all the things we covered up here that his worldview can't account for, Christianity accounts for. And you have to reaffirm, I'm not saying that you have to agree with this. I'm just asking questions of consistency. We have to at least say this for the Christian worldview. It doesn't unravel itself. It, it is a it, it ties together nicely. Um, now we can also talk about some of the marks that Scripture bears 
that are the marks of a divinely authored book. You kind of ask the question, if God were going to reveal himself in writing, what traits would we expect that book to have? Well, the, we would expect it to be good. The moral teaching of the Bible is universally regarded as good. All the world's religions say Jesus was a great moral teacher. Right? They have no basis on which to say that, but they say it. It's very difficult to go down the Ten Commandments and find one that you say, well, that's just wrong. Right? So we would expect that. It's good. You'd also expect it to be true. And we'll talk more about this later, but lots of historical sources that are non-biblical confirm the history that's repeated in the Bible. Even people who think the Bible is not a divinely authored book at all acknowledge it's a really good history book. It is very accurate in its natural teachings, even if they reject the supernatural teachings. Um, The majesty of the style poetry and prose, the grandeur of the whole thing, the consent of all the parts, that there's 66 books that don't contradict each other. It's not like you have one of these Bible books that completely undoes one of the other ones. It's pretty amazing. 66 books, how many different human authors, and that much agreement in what they teach. Um, And the, the... What is that? It has all of these traits that themselves fit what you would expect a divinely authored book to be. Um, Calvin said once, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their color or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. Um, This drips into an existential argument, but these all tie together. Part of what you'd want to say to the unbeliever is, have you ever read it? I mean, it can't hurt to read it. Read the Gospel of John and and just see. See how it makes you feel. Uh, Because you would expect that if God were to reveal himself in writing, the people who read it would would notice something different about it. Maybe that will happen for you. Um, But we also have to acknowledge, and should forthrightly acknowledge, that something else we would expect to be true of a divinely authored book is that only the testimony of God himself can convince us it's true. I can't vouch for God that the Bible's true. I can show you lots of logical reasons that support you believing that it's true. But if God is ultimate and scripture, his revealed self is ultimate, I can't vouch for him. Like, hey, let me convince you. If it really is ultimate, then the only person who can convince us that the ultimate is true is the ultimate. Uh, Justin, would you read John 10, 27? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The only one who can convince you of the ultimate is the voice of the ultimate. So part of what we're saying... Uh, as part of our ultimate argument is I can't get you there from here. In fact, part of what was wrong with your worldview is that it thinks it can get you there from here. It thinks you can reason from the finite to the infinite. But if you actually start with the infinite, the only one who can make the infinite known is the infinite. 
And again, you may not like what Scripture says. I'm just showing you the consistency of it. It is what we would expect. Who would have the authority to tell you that this book is the Word of God? Your instinct to say, I don't trust everything that men say, is a great instinct. I share that instinct. So who would we trust when they say, this is the Word of God? The answer is the only person we could trust is God. That doesn't mean we do trust Him, but it makes sense that that's the only one we could trust. This is exactly what we would expect. Proximate arguments. Positive proximate arguments are where you're going to end up blowing their minds if you know this stuff well. Um, People don't understand where ancient books come from. They don't understand how we have knowledge of the ancient in the first place. When we're talking about ancient books, Bible or not, we have zero autographs. Autographs are the original, the first copy that was ever made. We have zero. We have zero of anything. The printing press wasn't invented until, what, the 16th century? We got none of this. We have manuscripts, which are handmade copies of the originals. Again, this is not just true of the Bible. This is true of everything ancient. There are no autographs. (laughs) So we're dealing with manuscripts. So the two key questions when you're dealing with manuscripts, how many do we have? Now, why does that matter? Why does more make something more reliable? Yes. The more you have, the more you can see whether a difference in the manuscript was a scribal error or a real disagreement between the manuscripts. So if I have only two copies of something and they have two different phone numbers, I don't know which phone number was the right one. But if I have 100 copies and 98 of them have the same phone number and two are different, I know where the scribe screwed up, right? Scribes screw up. Handwritten copies are not an easy thing, y'all. You ever tried to write, transpose the Gospel of John in your own handwriting? You're going to make some mistakes. (laughs) Um... So how many is a big question because the consistency makes us more certain that what we're looking at is the same as what was on the autograph, the original. The second key question is how soon after the autograph was the copy we have made? So if I think that this book was written in 8050, And when I look through all the the manuscripts, and most of the time you're not dealing with whole manuscripts, you're dealing with fragments. But most of the time, I look through all my fragments, and my oldest fragment is five years later than that. How am I going to feel about the accuracy of that fragment that was written within five years of the original? I feel pretty, pretty darn good. The author was probably alive to validate the accuracy of this. Certainly other eyewitnesses were alive to validate. I'm going to feel pretty good about that. But if I look at my manuscript, and the oldest manuscript I have was 500 years away from the autograph, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but my confidence level goes way down, right? So the two key questions, how many do we have, and how soon after were they written? One really cool thing about the New Testament, not particularly useful for this discussion, but just y'all might like to know, 
if we had zero manuscripts, and I'm going to talk about how many we have in a minute, but if we had none, we'd still have nearly the whole New Testament. You know why? The early church fathers quoted it so much. So you go read the 2nd through 5th century church fathers in their own writings, and they are quoting scripture all over the place. And when they quote it consistently, you read four different ones, and it lines up. You have a high degree of confidence that that's accurate. That's within three or four centuries. So it's just a cool thing about the New Testament that isn't true about other works because they weren't quoted nearly as much. They didn't have an entire field of scholarship and religion uh, come up around them. So let's talk about number of manuscripts for a minute. And let's talk about some famous book. Uh, Caesar. Julius, he was a famous guy. And he wrote a book on the Gaelic Wars, right? Or Gallic Wars. <laughs> Different war. Um, how many men, and we know this, like you're taught about this in ancient history classes in college. This, we accept these facts as true. His recollection of what happened in the war is how we know anything about this war that we teach in in, uh, schools. How many manuscripts do we have? We have no autographs, remember. How many manuscripts do we have from Caesar? We have 10. Aristotle's Poetics. A lot of us had to study Aristotle in school. His poetics are widely published. You don't hear a lot of uh, documentaries on the Discovery Channel about why Aristotle's Poetics can't be trusted, that the manuscript evidence is faulty. How many manuscripts do we have total? 20. What about Plato? Everything Plato's ever written. How many manuscripts do we have? Seven. You don't hear a lot of BBC specials on why we don't really know what Plato said. Tacitus, an ancient historian who is used all the time in ancient history classes. He wrote a book called The Annals of History, which is really our only source for some of this ancient historical information that we teach in university classes. How many manuscripts do we have? Two. Just so I'm clear on a manuscript. So a manuscript is... All they had was handwriting. So in 8050, somebody writes a book. That's called an autograph. That's the original. There's only one autograph ever. Somebody takes that autograph and handwrites a copy. And for the rest of history, copies are made. Either from the autograph, if it exists, or most copies are made from other copies. They're copies of copies. Everything in that realm, copies and copies of copies, is what's called a manuscript. So when they they find a cave in the ancient Near East, and they find a, a clay jar that has some manuscript fragments in it, and they say, wow, we found... Uh, they name them papyrus, P46. We found P46, and it has this section of John's Gospel on it. They don't mean they found the autograph. They mean they found a manuscript that is really, really, really old. And then they'll use other things they found, the pottery. They'll use the language of other legal documents. Sometimes it's buried with other documents that have years on them because they were business transactions or things like that. And then they'll say, whoa, this copy is from uh, 8136. That's amazing. That's a super old copy. 
Those are all manuscripts. Um, Homer's. Why would you not? I'm sorry. I don't want to get the iPhone. Why would you not call if you found like broken shards with you know, you know letters or something written on it from that particular ancient time and autograph? How do you know that's not an autograph? Because they're not the original. If it's not the actual piece of papyrus that was written on in 8050 or whatever else, it, there is only one autograph for everything that's ever been written. If you write a letter to your spouse, the copy you wrote is the autograph. If they find a photocopy you made the next day, that's a fantastic manuscript, but it is not the autograph. Homer's Iliad. Anybody doubt that we have Homer's Iliad and that we know what the Iliad is? We're all forced to read it, right? There's no fighting over whether or not the Iliad's real. We have 643 manuscripts for the Iliad. That is really, really amazing. Now let's talk about the New Testament. Only Greek manuscripts, fragments and full manuscripts, only Greek. We have 5,800. We have 10,000 in Latin. We have nearly 10,000 in Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, uh, Ethiopic, Coptic, Armenian, all the languages from the countries right on the periphery of the New Testament times. 643 of the Iliad, 7 of Plato, 2 of Tacitus, 26,000 of the New Testament. How many is an important question. It's how we look for consistency. Can we trust that these copies say what the originals said? And the reason we answer that yes is, part one, we have so many of them. The evidence of this is a quote from a guy named F.F. Bruce, great theologian. The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for writings of many classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would be regarded as beyond all doubt. People do not doubt the authenticity of the New Testament because history gives them good reason to. They doubt it because they don't want to believe what it says, which is fine. They don't have to believe what it says. But when we're making our proximate positive argument, we need to say, I believe the Bible because God says it is to be believed. But after I believe the Bible and I go back and look and say, does this decision make any sense? History says, yeah, it does. Date of the manuscript, the second prong. I mentioned the Gallic War, Caesar's book. Earliest manuscript we have, 900 years after the events. I mentioned Aristotle's poetics. 1,400 years after the events. Tacitus with his Roman histories, 750 years after the events. So whatever year the event happened, go forward 750 more years. That's the earliest copy we have. Doesn't mean it's wrong. In many cases, it's not wrong. It's just, whoo, we really start getting to some more sketchy manuscript evidence at that point. Virgil's Aeneid, 300 years we don't question the Aeneid. The New Testament, earliest fragments, which are of John, actually, 35 to 55 years, depending on how you date it. So wherever John wrote, which kind of was around 8050, you only have to go 35 years into the future, and we have manuscripts from then, from that 
close. Now, we don't have a ton. We, we don't have to pretend. We have 15 manuscript or fragments from the Bible that are less than 100 years removed. We have 50 that are within 200, and we have 100 manuscripts or fragments that are within 400 years of the events. And that sounds pretty bit, whoa, 400 years later, but remember the numbers I gave you on the other ones. We don't question the Gallic War. We don't question Aristotle's poetics. That was 1,400 years later. Um, And especially when our older copies, and when I'm talking older, I'm talking 400 years, match our earliest copies, where I'm talking 35 to 55 years, it is incredibly confirming. Um, The last thing on this front is the quality of the New Testament manuscripts. And again, we're arguing for the believability of the Bible with somebody who's probably going to come out and say, you know you can't trust the New Testament, it's been corrupted, blah, blah, blah. Here's all the information we've got to to make a different proximate argument, an argument from evidence. Um, Volume of manuscripts, age of manuscripts, and then third is quality of manuscripts. And what I mean by that is internal consistency. Uh, A guy named Bruce Metzger, who's a, a theological scholar, did a analysis of what's called the distortion rate. So let me take all the manuscripts we've got and basically do the math on where they disagree. Where are their scribal errors or differences? He didn't care what the reason was. Let's just add up the number of them to see how much confusion or ambiguity there is. How many, what percentage of the texts do we have to look at and say, I think this is the original, but I'm not 100% sure. That's really the question he's asking. He did the Iliad, which is a good uh, ancient source. 5% distortion rate. 5% of the text of the Iliad, they have to look at and say, we think it's this. Wouldn't bet our lives on it, but we think so. Uh, They did the Mahabharata, which is a a Hindu religious text that's in a similar situation. 10% distortion rate. 90% of it, we're 100% confident. Here's what the autograph said. 10% of it, we think so. We're pretty sure. Wouldn't stake our lives on it. What do you think the distortion rate is for our nearly 30,000 New Testament manuscripts? If I remember, I think it's like 1%. Less. 0.2. I was going to say 2. 2 tenths of a percent. When you look at your English Bible, this is always my argument for people when they're all hung up on what version of the Bible should I use and blah, blah, blah. I have preferences. I have favorites. I think some are better than others. But none of it relates to how much of it is reliable or believable. When you look at your English translations, not um, paraphrases, but when you look at English translations, there's only point two percent of the Bible that we would even have a question about. And in God's providence, and I mean that sincerely, the work of his Holy Spirit through his providence, none of it is doctrinal. None of it. It's how many troops were in this group of people. You got different ways of counting stuff. It's what year did this king's reign begin? You got different ways of counting stuff. And that seems weird for very precise Western minds. But in the ancient Near East, it wasn't a big deal. 0.2% distortion. Um, And something to point out to an unbeliever, you know what Christianity does that I personally, correct me if I'm wrong, 
don't see any other religions do. We don't hide those from you at all. Open your Bible and look at the footnotes and they'll say things like some manuscripts read. We're, we're, we're not, it's not some power grab scam here. We're, we're up front that, hey, this is one of those words where it could go this way or it could go that way. Does it fundamentally alter the doctrinal meaning is the key question. And the answer is always no. Um, you can do this with internal tests on the Bible books. If you've got somebody who really wants to go down this path, eyewitnesses. You go to Luke and you show them, look, Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to those by those who were eyewitnesses. These are reports of eyewitnesses. If, if the New Testament was some giant fraud being perpetrated against the public, wouldn't there be a groundswell of books that exist that say, I was there, this didn't happen, this is a lie? No such books exist. You don't have all the things you would expect to have in the first century if some giant fraud of history is taking place. Um, the stories in the Bible have the traits you would expect history to have. Sometimes you read the story and you say, who cares about this detail? Why is it in here? Isn't that what you'd expect from a human author writing a history? They care about something that you don't care about? The idea that the New Testament whitewashes history. That, have you read it? The, the, the New Testament can't be believed because the Catholic Church changed it to make Peter sound better? Have you read it? If you were going to rewrite the New Testament to make Peter sound better, would you have left the New Testament the way we have it today? No, I think you'd have taken a few things out. It doesn't add up. It is incredibly internally consistent. And then the really big one that I do have a a Word document I can give you uh, if you're interested with some people is, do you know what else you would expect of a divinely written document? You'd expect its prophecy to come true. If God were to write about what will happen in the future, you'd expect for it to really happen. And so then you can just say, let's look at some of these. Let's look at Genesis 3.15, that the Savior would be the offspring of a woman. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18, that he'd be a prophet, mighty in word and deed, that he'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, in the city of Bethlehem, Micah 5, despised and rejected of men, Isaiah 53, enter Jerusalem riding on a colt, Zechariah 9, betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, his hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, but not a bone in his body would be broken, Psalm 33. Men would cast lots for his garments, Psalm 22. He'd be given gall and vinegar to drink, Psalm 69. He would rise from the dead, Psalm 16. It's exactly what you would expect if God reveals himself and he talks about the future. That stuff's going to happen. You can go the comparison historical route. It doesn't contradict the non-Christian ancient histories. They speak the same way about the events that took place. You can go archaeology. You can quote the famous archaeologist Bill Albright who said, uh, the, the excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by the schools of the 18th and 19th century has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy and brought increased recognition to the Bible as a source of history. Again, non-Christian, just saying, you're not going to disprove the Bible from archaeology. Um, So what you're doing in that argument is to say, could we just treat the Bible like any other book? When it comes to whether or not the copy we have can be believed, could we just treat it like any other book? Hold it up to the same standards. 
you don't throw away all your other history books. You don't reject the article in the Wall Street Journal because you didn't see it with your own eyes. You don't reject World War II histories because you weren't there and it's been a long time since that happened. Let's not apply that standard. Uh, Let's apply that same standard to the Bible. And then finally, you need to give your existential argument. Your personal testimony concerning the Bible. The testimonies of others in your life concerning the Bible. Those times where scripture has been made clear to you and has brought a light to your life and has given you hope when circumstances just made hope seem unattainable and and has led you into truth that actually had positive outcomes and has brought peace and joy to your soul. Give that existential testimony. Here's the impact of the Bible on me. And I'm sorry, I've read a lot of books written by men and none of them do that. None of them do that. When my soul goes to its darkest place, it is not the words of man that can bring me back into the light. Questions about all that? I know it's a lot, but again, you you see how it all fits together. And you see how if you wanted to go down this particular course of study and learning more about the manuscripts, this is a great one to go down. It is a very attainable, non-philosophical, but very persuasive argument of, wait a minute, everything, and then you can get to the why question and the existential. Why do you think, given all this evidence, there's so much that comes out from the media or from unbelievers that says the opposite of this, that tries to pretend this, get into the why question. Why what other worldview has so many years of an entire industry built up to tell people it's wrong? What makes Christianity so unique that so many people dedicate their lives, not just to not believing it themselves, which is fine, but to telling other people they shouldn't believe it either? Isn't that odd? Again, it doesn't prove it. We're making an existential argument. But don't you just feel like that is weird? It's almost as if that's what you would expect if it were divine revelation and it really is black and white, the people who are with God and the people who choose to be against Him. 